0: Good day and welcome to the premiere episode of This Week in Startups Australia. I'm your host, Mark Pesci, and today we'll be speaking with Ian Gardner, founder of Iocorp Innovation Bay and now running startup business development for Amazon Web Services. Ian knows as much as anyone about the climate for startup companies here in Australia, and he'll take us on a brief tour through the landscape. Then we'll be speaking with Airtasker founder and CEO Tim Fung. With over half a percent of all 23 million Australians already signed up as air taskers, Tim's startup could ignite the biggest disruption in the Australian labour market ever. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Fishburners, Australia's largest startup space with 90 startups working from one large building in Ultimo, including this recording studio. Fishburners is a non-profit dedicated to supporting entrepreneurs and has a pitching competition open to the public every Friday afternoon at 4.30. Today we're speaking with Aussie startup legend Ian Gardner. Ian's founded a number of companies and has served a very pivotal role in the Australian startup community. So what I'd like to start off with, Ian, is could you tell me what it's like to create a startup in
1: Australia? Uh... Well, thank you for having me. First of all, it's uh, it's great to be here. Uh, look, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, I've spent 18 years of my career running startups. Uh, I was a child of the first dot-com boom, so uh, it is exceptionally difficult to, to make money from startups. Uh, I think if it was easy, everyone would be rich, mm. and we probably wouldn't be on this show. Uh, so it is really hard. I mean, Australia is a unique uh, landscape. Uh, it's a s- fairly small market. It's very geographically dispersed. It's at the sort of, um, you know, bottom end of the world. Uh, you know, it can't quite work out whether it's Asia or America. Uh, so, and there are a few unique challenges within that. So, I mean, there's no easy answer to, and I, I think we'll probably explore some of the other issues behind it. But the, the punchline is it's hard.
0: Is it harder here, do you reckon, than it would be, say, in London or in Silicon Valley or in New York or in Hong Kong?
1: Different degrees of heart. Uh, if you're a talented entrepreneur in somewhere like Silicon Valley with mm. a great network, the chance of you building a billion-dollar business is probably higher. In fact, it's definitely higher than it would be here. Uh, but the most talent there are incredibly talented entrepreneurs in Australia. So if you think about Atlassian or Freelancer or any of those guys, I mean, they have done an exceptional job building their business here. But in order to scale to get up to that billion-dollar valuation, you have to get overseas. Mm. You cannot build a billion-dollar business just within the confines of Australia. I mean, it's not impossible, but incredibly difficult, especially in the internet So then maybe the
0: first thing we need to say is that Aussie startups always have to have an international focus, whether it's right off the bat, maybe not, but certainly sometime when they start to hit a real growth spurt, they have to go international.
1: Yes. I mean, the internet by its nature is global. Uh, Capital by its nature is global. So if you are in business uh, in the internet, You absolutely, if you want to scale and get big and and successful, go global. So let's come back to that question of capital.
0: Do we find most Australian startups being funded with Australian capital
1: or with foreign capital? It's both. Um, Most of them in Australia are raising money here. And there's no right answer to this. I mean, there's a lot of companies think it's, it's better to go and, uh, you know, dick quitting and sell to the US and find that the streets are lined with gold mm. or not because mm. uh, it's hard there too. Uh, I mean, often what I'll say to entrepreneurs is, look, raise the money where you live because you need to be able to, to go and have a coffee with your funders or your board members or anyone like that. Um, so if you're going to go and live in the US, raise your money in the US. If you're staying here... Stay here, but prepared to be prepared to travel a lot because there are exceptions to that rule. But I would say, as a rule, raise the money where you live. Do you think it's harder for people to raise
0: angel or even Series A money in Australia than it might be somewhere else?
1: Look, overall, yes, um, I, I'd say it is. The, the The level of sophistication. I mean, this is part of one. Well, this is part of the challenge we have in Australia. The level of sophistication within that capital base that's funding you mm-hmm. is not where it is overseas. And if you look at the, the rates of venture capital or even angel investment uh, in Australia and New Zealand, I mean, it's dismal compared to, to, to the rest of the world. Now, well,
0: why is that?
1: <laughs> look, a variety of reasons. One of them is that y- you can't point to incredible success stories yet. I mean, you can call out the outliers like Atlassian or, I mean, the, there's a new uh, company just funded by uh, Axel invoice to go but yes. neither of those guys raised any money yes. before they took the money from Excel, So they were so talented that you didn't actually need it. So uh, for the rest of them, um, you know, so the investors are coming along saying, well, prove that we can get a return from this. But the problem is it takes five to seven years on average to see a return from invested capital. So if we think five to seven years back from where we are today, I mean, the, the, the landscape was... Well, there was no mobile. No, right. The smartphone no mobile, had barely started at that point. No iPad, no, no I mean, cloud computing was, was in its infancy. Yeah, barely, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the landscape was incredibly diff, uh, different to how it was now. So what we're going to see in the next two, three, four, five years is the emergence of the really successful ones that have been funded. Right. And then you're going to start seeing uh, a, an, an influx of capital back into to the investment market. And more importantly, an influx of capital from people who are smart. Uh, i.e. the successful entrepreneurs. And this right. is what happens in Silicon Valley. You get what I call the money go round. Yeah. So a successful entrepreneur sells his business, makes some money, puts it back into the next business. Yeah. And so the cycle continues. Yeah. We don't have that here. Because
0: we haven't gotten enough generations of cashed out entrepreneurs who understand how to assess risk That's correct, and actually have their gut Saying I want to put some money here, I want to put some money there. Yeah,
1: and, and and it's it's a bit flippant, but historically, if you made a pile of money in Australia, you'd buy a big house in the Gold Coast and you'd go and live up there, <laughs> and you wouldn't do much with it. But right. uh, we're not seeing that. So if you look at you know Mike and Scott from Midlassian, and I mean they are active investors now, uh, and it's, you know they don't have much time to do it, yeah. but they are active, uh, and, and which is terrific to see. I mean that's what the that's what we need here. So.
0: Do Americans know Australia is on the map in terms of technology, in terms of startups?
1: Look, the best ones do, if that's the uh, if that's the question. So, if you think about uh, you know the best VC, so Peter Thiel's fund, right. TCV, and Axel in particular, I mean they have made active investments. And you know when I was running Vicorp, I'd be getting a call every second week from a uh, a VC in in the US, mm-hmm. or a, you know, some lowly analyst who's obviously worked a lot of hours to get to that point, point. Uh, and they'd be cold calling to say, "Hey, we've heard about you. You're on right. the we were on the Deloitte Fast 50 for a few years. Yeah. We'd won a few awards." So they are actively trolling, and I think it's because the the, the, the deal flow in the US is pretty competitive. Right. Whereas here, if you find uh, invoice to go, I mentioned them before. Uh, I mean, Excel had obviously spotted them uh, emerging and made a big effort to to serenade them and tell them about the benefits of working with them and, 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 and et cetera. Um, so the most sophisticated money is aware of Australia and the talent pool that's available here. And uh,
0: sees it as a place to get a bargain,
1: then, it sounds like. Uh,
0: you could put it that way, or you could put it as... Uh, well, if it's it, a less competitive market. Yeah. So um, are we seeing... I mean, this is this brings up this good point. For two startups, all things being equal between them, is there a different multiple in the valuation for a startup in a Silicon Valley or a Hong Kong or a New York versus what it might be in Sydney or Melbourne?
1: There shouldn't be, but there is. Um, And partly that's down to expectation, partly it's down to competition, uh, partly it's down to talent. Uh, I mean, there's historically always been a disconnect between what entrepreneurs think their business is worth. Than what uh, an investor is prepared to pay for for that stake in the business, uh, because there's less competition here and and money is more scarce, it probably puts the whip hand with the the the, the investors rather right. than the entrepreneurs. And those that don't like that will get on a plane and go and live in the U.S. and set up the Delaware company. And-
0: so rather than having too much money chasing too few startups, which is the situation in most of America right now, and is starting to become a situation in London, what we actually have is too little money chasing too many startups in Australia now. So that the, the control relationship is the reverse. And it's more like what it was, say, in America perhaps five years ago yeah. then.
1: Look, I'd say that's true. Uh, but a large number of those startups are probably not fu- fundable or or investment ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you should only really be raising money for your startup if you know from from that angel or VC. Route, if you if you stand a chance of turning it into a hundred million dollar plus, seems to be the rule of thumb. And there's many of those companies that we've seen out in market trying to raise money that will never get there. Mm. Uh, and that's not to say they shouldn't be out there building a business. Uh, but in some way, you know. You, you, it, it's but you need the appropriate investment vehicle for that. Correct. Well, you need a great business. Right. You need a, uh, a business that can scale, and you need the talent to be able to scale to get to the point that you're you're a hundred million dollar plus business. And if you're just a really niche, better market who's developed an app for your iPhone, I'm afraid you're not going to get to a hundred million dollars in that particular model. But that's you know. And don't get me wrong. I, I by no means don't wish to discourage people who are doing that because you can build a successful business, learn the ropes and then get on to build your $100 million business.
0: But there's another type of exit, which is the acquisition exit. Do we see those in Australia as well? Do we see little companies being snapped
1: up? No, not to the same degree uh, that you are overseas. It's not to say that doesn't happen. And and there are, uh, I mean, this is not necessarily an, an, an exit route, but there are corporate venturing uh, arms now cropping up. So, uh westpac's got reinventure uh amp's announcing something um telstra's got telstra ventures plus so you know there's more and more activity in that space and i think that's really healthy Mm -hmm. because corporates are now you know every corporate is scared senseless that you know someone's going to kick them in the balls and steal their wallet but the the fear of disruption yeah they don't know where that's going to come from so uh what we've been saying back to them is look you should be embracing what startups can do uh, because they are innovative, they are disruptive. You can either invest in them, you can acquire them, you can think like them, or you can just use them as a supplier. And and for a long time, corporates just haven't been prepared to do that. And I think there is a change now happening. Hi, this is
0: Mark Pesci, host of This Week in Startups Australia. Two years ago when I had a great idea for a startup Mm -hmm. and I wanted a location to launch that product and launch that startup, I immediately thought of Fishburners here in Sydney. Fishburners, even two years ago, had become the epicenter for all things startup. It's a building that's loaded with entrepreneurs who are sharing a common space, sharing ideas, feeding off of one another, figuring out how to use what each other are creating to make themselves even better. And it makes me very proud to know that Fishburners is the premier sponsor of This Week in Startups Australia because it really is, for me the epicenter of the startup community. You can find out more about Fishburners at fishburners.org. And we're back with startup legend Ian Gardner talking about the startup lay of the land here in Australia. So I'm wondering, Ian, we are a very smart nation. We're very well educated. We have some of the best universities in the world. We have a lot of people going through them. We have amazing talent pool. How easy is it for a startup to attract good talent? And how hard is
1: it for them to retain that talent? Uh, how easy is it? Not easy. How hard is it to retain them? Very hard. Uh, you know, those are the punchlines. Uh, look, th- there's not enough um, either... I mean, there's two problems with the the recruitment or the, the, the talent pool in Australia. One is there's not enough... Uh, IT trained professionals coming through, so you know the 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 entry um, to courses that supply that is is plummeted, and I think it's seventy percent of people who start those courses drop out. So the number of graduates emerging is just abysmally small. And secondly, compared to what the demand would be, yeah. Right. And, and at the same time that the uh, you know that pool of trained talent is decreasing, the pool of desired talent from startups and corporates and anyone in that IT space is increasing. Um, you know, so if I, you know, I keep trying to kick my kids harder, saying, um, "Will you please go and learn some good?" Uh, you know, it's all very well playing Destiny and Halo, but have you any idea what went into to developing them, that game? Yeah. Because that, you know, is, is great playing them, uh, but to do it is harder. Uh, and the second problem is the um, the lack of training around being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in some ways, uh, you can pop up and say hey I'm an entrepreneur and it's not as bad now but it used to be like hey I've got venereal disease or something (laughs) pretty bad like that. (laughs) Uh, And they sent you off to the clinic. Yeah so uh, it was kind of this frowned upon activity that your mum wouldn't have approved of Uh, but I think that is changing but it has to change at the the earliest possible stages so we are seeing you know entrepreneur uh, training you know there's a there's a group in Perth I've talked to Just Start IT I think they're called who are trying to put it into the curriculum uh, and I think that's really... Curriculum really, at the...
0: At the school level, high school. Uh, sorry, at the secondary school secondary level. Secondary school level. Right. So
1: years 10, 11, 12, teach them how to be an entrepreneur, teach right. them how to code, give them the option that being a, an entrepreneur, or doing a startup is a valid career path rather than going to drive a truck in the mines or...
0: Uh, again. Right, which again, because you can make $150,000 a year, or at least could, until recently, make $150,000 a year, a very healthy living in yeah. Australia, driving a truck in the mines in some ways, Australia's labor market doesn't look at all like the labor market in any of the other countries that have thriving no, startup uh, economies, because in San Francisco, the entire economy has been weighted around the fact that there have been a b- bunch of people who have cashed out with millions of dollars of yeah. shares, or you can make, um, if you're a star coder, yeah. $200,000, dollars $400,000 a year, doing that for Google or for Facebook yeah. or something. And we don't see those
1: kinds of salaries the hair, do we? No. No. I mean, look, the salaries are increasing. And part of the problem with, with startups, and I knew this with my, my days at Viacorp, you're competing with the the banks. I mean, we were a, a .NET development shop. And just, just as an aside for our
0: American listeners, the Australian banks, the big four Australian banks, are the most profitable banks in the world. They had no problems during the financial crash in 2008. No. And can afford to offer top salaries because they are producing, say, Almost ten billion dollars a year in profits right now. Yeah, I think it's twenty billion, isn't it? No, I'm sorry, ten billion a piece, right for the four banks exactly. So yes, the total profit of the banking center industry is greater than twenty billion dollars.
1: Yeah, so of course they can afford to to, to pay higher higher, higher salaries. So you know, which puts the onus onto the entrepreneurs and the startups to to make sure that you know. Come and work for me, this is much more exciting. we're changing the world, and you're not just going to sit in some cubicle you know pounding out code for a for a project that may not even get deployed uh, you know and share options would be something that you know is is important so um, let's let's talk about that i'm
0: I'm actually going to have a, a lawyer on in a few weeks talking about how share options work and don't work in Australia but in America, if I signed you up as an employee to my startup, I can give you shares yep. And you will not pay tax on those shares until you exercise your share options. And then you'll pay tax on the differential between the offer price and the sale price. How does that work in Australia?
1: Uh, You basically pay tax in cash uh, on the value of the shares when you're handed them. So if I hand you half a million dollars of my phantom shares, you pay, you know, if you're at the higher tax rate, um, 200, 250,000 in cash, in tax. You know, for so shares that are not actually transferable. Correct. Right. Correct. So look, and there are ways around it, but it involves in, involves lawyers and expense, and you know phantom loans, and you know so it is possible <laughs> to do it.
0: I hadn't even known there were ways around this, and yeah, I think that perhaps we're going to stay away from that because I don't necessarily want an investigation no, well, of our first program.
1: It, 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 it's not illegal the ways around it; it's just expensive in terms of your lawyers and accountants. Uh, look, I'd, I'd rather talk about what works overseas. And what works overseas are the um, you know the, the, the tax credit programs. Mm. You know, just a better regulatory environment for, for startups. And, you know, look to the US, look to the UK, look to Israel. Right. I mean, they have a much better regulatory environment for startups. On the other hand, we also have the R&D tax credit. Which is outstanding. So
0: with the R&D tax credit, if you accurately track your development costs, your R&D costs you get how much of that back at the end of the year from the tax office? I
1: think it's just come down a bit. It was 45%. I think it's now 43.5% of uh, relevant uh, spend, which essentially is your developers. So Viacorp, I mean, we were getting almost $2 million back in some years in cash, uh, which was outstanding. I mean, we could not have survived uh, during those mid-years without that. And so that's really, if you're starting a, uh, a startup that is very heavily...
0: R and D focused. You know, yes, it's going to have marketing and sales arms because it's absolutely going to need those. But if you're doing something that's R and D focused, essentially Australia will pay half of that cost for you if it's being done in Australia.
1: And and R and D basically counts as software development. So if you are a software company, you can claim all of your relevant expenditure back as R&D. Right, and as I know from Moore's Cloud, hardware development falls exactly
0: under that as well, and that means all your prototyping, all of your testing, all of the stuff that you need to do in order to get a product that's ready to manufacture. Correct. And if you're marketing, you can also get a rebate on the marketing that you do overseas. Is that correct?
1: So how much is... There are caps on it. I think it's uh, if you're spending up to one hundred and fifty grand in conferences or expanding your your market. Um, And that's what, Austrade, is that right? Yeah. Yes, I think it is.
0: Yeah, and so and they give you back. I think it's something like forty percent if it's over twenty thousand dollars in any particular year, something like that.
1: Yes, yeah, around that. So look, there yeah. are great credit schemes available for for startups. And so there's a lot of in that sense because this
0: I don't know there wouldn't be anything like this in the United States. I don't know about in the other domains. So this actually means that although Australia may have a high cost base that a lot of those costs, in fact, are deferred. And so if you can build your budgets around understanding what those deferrals are and how to make them work, you can actually go a lot further for an investment dollar here than you might other places. Correct. Now I'm going to ask you a really hard question. It's a question that gets asked a lot. And uh, I want to close this morning with this question. Where... Do you reckon has the better startup environment? Is it Sydney or Melbourne? I mean, there's always a lot of rivalry between those two cities, and there's a lot of star rivalry between those two cities. If you were starting a company today,
1: which one would you pick, and why? Look, it is a tough question. Uh, I chose Sydney. Uh, the The climate's better. Uh, we've got the harbour. You know, you don't want to just bang on about the stuff that that's great. They are fantastic cities, both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say if, if you look at the overall startup ecosystem across Australia and New Zealand, uh, 40% roughly Sydney, 30% roughly Melbourne, mm-hmm. and then, in, you know, kind of in descending order from that, you'd have Perth, Auckland, Adelaide, Canberra. you Brisbane out. Brisbane up. Brisbane, Brisbane. Oh, actually right up Brisbane right is third. third. Sorry, Brisbane. Yeah. I didn't forget you. So Brisbane, Perth uh auckland canberra adelaide canberra
0: so all things being equal it really is just a matter of taste whether you end up in melbourne or in sydney both of them have strong technology universities well-educated pools of capital yeah. all of that stuff and they both have areas uh so little startup uh communities they within do. them
1: yeah and and they both have um you know, sophisticated investment pools, you know, so Melbourne's got Square Peg and we've got Blackbird and now Airtree, you know, so in, in, in our view that they are the top tier VCs in, in, in town. Uh, so if you can get access to any of them and, and again, going back to the, the point, raise the money where you live. So if you're in Melbourne, you know, go and knock on Square Peg's door and if you're in Sydney, go and see Nicky and the guys at Blackbird. Okay. okay. What is your one bit of advice that you would give to someone who is thinking of doing a startup? Just do it, because if you think too hard, you'll never do it, because there is a hundred good reasons not to do it. Ian, thank you very much for being the first guest on
0: This Week in Startups Australia.
1: Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's my great pleasure to welcome Tim Fung as the first startup entrepreneur guest on This Week in Startups Australia. He's the CEO and founder of Airtasker. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell me what Airtasker does.
2: Airtasker um, is an online and mobile marketplace. Uh, We connect people and businesses um, together with local community members who want to earn money by completing tasks. So um, through Airtasker, you can outsource things like cleaning, gardening, handyman jobs uh, for for consumers, Uh, but also businesses are using Airtasker for a lot of things like market research, um, mystery shopping, um, or even um, business services around the office. When you
0: started, you really thought this was going to be a consumer-to-consumer sort of business, right? And when did you start to discover that there was actually a business-to-consumer aspect of Airtasker?
2: Well, when we when we started Airtasker, we built it as a uh, pure platform play. So we really built it as an open marketplace. Mm-hmm. And obviously the first guys that were, were on the platform creating content sort of set the tone um, for what was to come. And, and they were really consumers. Um, but what we saw um, start to happen over time is that businesses would um, – they're pretty rational and they're pretty smart. So when they see a platform, they're the ones who really sort of think outside the box about how they can use – it uh, to benefit their business. Is there a
0: have you seen a sort of penny drop moment around this, where a business just gets it and then starts to really incorporate Air Tasker?
2: Definitely. I mean, it's a it's overall it's a slow educational process, um, but we're seeing the bulk of our usage come from repeat users every month. So that really means that people are sort of understanding the concept, they buy in, and then they're using it consistently.
0: So uh, once they get it, it really becomes just a normal part of their their
2: life. Absolutely. I mean, we've got businesses on there that um, are almost exclusively using Airtasker for all their labor needs. Um, so we've what got. What kinds comp- of
0: businesses are doing that?
2: Um, so we have a letterbox distribution company, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, rather than you know going to Gumtree or Craigslist to recruit um, new users. Mm -hmm. They're they're just posting the jobs on on Airtasker. And we have things um, like uh, insurance um, and the reviews and references and things like that. So that just keeps them coming back and they just find it an easier platform to manage you know, a fleet of 30 or 40 workers uh, rather than... Let's step
0: know. back. So reviews, insurance, what do you mean? These are services that you're offering the folks who are purchasing the labor of someone else?
2: Yeah, so what we um, created was, um, and we believe it's a, a global first, um, is a task insurance so uh, what it means is that every user who completes jobs on our platform mm-hmm. is covered for up to $20 million um, if they damage something or if they injure someone um, while, they're, while they're completing tasks on Airtasker. Um, and we, that's all um, included in you know, the, the fees, that, that the commissions that Airtasker makes. Right. Um, so it's not an additional cost, but it's definitely a value add um, that you get from using the Airtasker platform. So that
0: means that... I, as someone who's contracting labor on Airtasker, don't have liability around the person that I've contracted with because Airtasker has taken that liability on.
2: Uh, that's right. Well, our insurance policy has taken um, has taken that on. So what it um, what it protects is it, pre- it covers the worker right. for any damage which they cause right. to a third party or any um, injuries or anything like that that they cause so to a if third they get party it by a bus or something like that. Yeah. God forbid. That's right. So that's so you're saying
0: that. You, you folks are the first. Are you, are you folks sort of the only one in this space who's been offering something like that?
2: Well, I think in terms of um, uh, there's certainly other players. You know, in the U.S. There, there's TaskRabbit and um, to a certain degree there's Odesk and Elance mm-hmm. and Freelancer.com who mm-hmm. all offer uh, platforms for outsourcing services. Um, but we were certainly the first guys to create an insurance product uh, which covered the broad scope of task labour. And what we think about that is it's super exciting that insurance companies are getting it. They're getting it... How is that? How did you get them to see the value of this? How did you
0: get them to write you a policy? How long did you have to work with them for that?
2: Uh, It was about six months um, of continuous work and a a little bit of a shout out I suppose to um, Jeff Stuckey uh, from Modern Risk Solutions. So he was actually pitching it to us all the way through that he's done insurance policies for all the big corporates and things like that but he's passionate about collaborative consumption and Mm -hmm. he thinks it's a massive, massive opportunity. I mean, he saw Airbnb um, the policy that they created
0: well and the policy they created because they had a crash and burn scenario and that's the thing is it's a policy that's created during a crisis and you've managed to create the policy and provide the insurance ahead of a crisis right?
2: well that's right and I, I think that that's how an industry evolves right? right like um you learn from the mistakes of the, the early guys right. and the smoking craters absolutely <laughs> exactly and i think going forward there are going to be you know mistakes that we make mm. that new players are going to come in and they're going to go we're not going to make those same mistakes you did i'm sure they'll make their own mistakes though what what mistakes have you made do you reckon? Oh, I mean we've made we've made mistakes uh I would say everything that we haven't done well um it could be considered to be a mistake um Look, we haven't had any major incidents on the platform, which has Mm. been fantastic. I think Mm. the the biggest incident which we've had is um, someone drilled through a wall uh, when they were mounting a television and didn't realize that there was a water pipe behind it. Oh, dear. And so uh, put a little bit of a hole in in a water pipe. Um, But that's something that, you know, um, whether you hire people through the Yellow Pages or through any other kind of medium, even just through Google, um, these things happen. Um, but using a platform like Airtasker helps you mitigate some of those risks when you 're dealing with people there 's always going to be things that right. don 't happen according to plan um, but we think that these platforms can help make that improve that experience now if
0: to to turn things around here if i 'm making money through Airtasker all right so I go out and I select the jobs that I want uh, now is it the person who's providing the job, who's paying for air tasker, it's not me as the person who's, uh, who's providing the labour, correct?
2: No, it's actually, it is that way. So, we follow a, um, a similar model to eBay. Right. Uh, which is that, um, and it's it ends up being the same mathematical equation, um, but the way it works is that we facilitate a, a P2P payment uh-huh. uh, for the task labour, mm-hmm. and we charge a small fee to the guys who are doing the jobs, the air taskers, um, for that. And the reason why we've done that is just to Simplify that process between you and the person that you're working for. Mm-hmm. That process, um, given that we sort of consider the person who's hiring the labour as the the customer right. per se we want to make that transaction as seamless. simple as possible and we don't want to say plus three and a half percent X fee and and two percent right. because unless you fee. have that
0: labor demand there aren't there isn't going to be any labor for the air taskers
2: exactly and they know that they know that the more se- uh, the workers know that the more seamless we make it to hire labor right. the more jobs for them um, and, and and they labor. also
0: know then that they're buying this insurance policy as part of that and the whole thing so what's the what's what's the cut that you take out of this. Uh, so,
2: we, take, we charge 15%. Um, and that's, um, you know, we, there's a lot included in that, I suppose. There's a lot of administration. There's customer service and dispute resolution. Mm. And there's, um, there's insurance. Is GST charged in these transactions? Uh, yes. So, um, when you're paying your Airtasker fees, yes, there's GST. But that's all included in right. our fee. So, right. we just tell you the, the all-in price. Mm-hmm. Um, but one way of thinking about it, I suppose, is how much does it cost you to acquire a customer on Google? You know, you start a little plumbing company. You put your ads on Google. It's three or four dollars a click. Yeah. Um. A lot of management goes into that, and of the clicks that you get, maybe one in ten will turn into a job. Um. So when you sort of do that math, it's sort of thirty or forty dollars to get a job, whereas with Airtasker, on average, it's probably fifteen dollars to get a job. Um, But you're guaranteed that job. So we never charge you anything, and you've got nothing to lose unless you're earning money. So are you seeing,
0: for example, plumbers who are using Airtasker as their primary means of getting jobs?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly handymen, um, guys who are sort of um, hire-a-hubby-type models, um, they definitely um, are using Airtasker. And many of them are using it full-time. So one of the best quotes I heard uh, the other day is we we had a bit of a drink um, at the the Airtasker headquarters Mm. and we invited um, some of our top users there and a lot of the guys were just saying yeah I just quit my job to do Airtasker and we were like that's that was amazing for us to see these people who aren't just sort of using Airtasker as an incremental right. extra money earner, but um, a career effectively. They're all effectively. in. They're all in. Um, and as they build those um, those reviews and that feedback up, that reputation becomes super, super powerful. How-
0: are you thinking of building anything that would help them lean into this so that would give them some branding inside of airtasker beyond their reputation on it will they be able to in this almost in the ebay sense set up a bit of a store inside of airtasker
2: well i think that's actually a super super interesting question and i've done a lot of thinking around this um it's you know during the industrial revolution, um, that's when the idea of like a company came about, right. and a company could own a brand, and all these people would work for this for this brand, right. um, but as those people left the company, the company would retain. The brand, right? And now, what we're kind of seeing through collaborative consumption is, why can't Mark Pesky be a brand? Right. Why can't Tim Fung be a brand? Right. Um, so therefore, we don't necessarily we we may let them have nicknames or create a logo or something like that. But but really, what we want to do is empower people to own their own brand, their own reputation. Um, so you don't necessarily need to have a company or anything. You are the brand.
0: If I were launching a startup today, I'd probably take myself down to Fishburners. Every Friday afternoon, they have a pitching competition that's open to everyone. And I'd probably take my idea here and see how it flew. And if people saluted here, I'd probably feel pretty sure that I had a good idea. And not only that I had a good idea, but that I was in the right community of people who could help me take that idea where it could go help me grow that idea, meet the right people, build the right organization, use the right tools to make the most of my ideas. And that's really what Fishburners is all about. You can find out more at fishburners.org. Welcome back to this week in Startups Australia and we're talking to Tim Fung, founder and CEO of Airtasker. Now, how long have you been at Airtasker?
2: It's been a it's been quite a journey and it uh, feels probably longer than it's been, but it's it's been over a little over 2 years. When you started, how many people? Uh, so we started, it was myself and, and my co-founder, Jono, um, who heads up all of our technology and operations. And, and plays a mean game of ping pong, I've heard. Yes, uh, Tankstream Labs champion, but not quite the champion of uh, the overall Sydney scene. Um, a bit disappointing.
0: <laughs> Beaten by premier sponsor, Fishburners. I just have to put that in there.
2: So it was the two
0: of you. Now, how did you then build the company in the sense of how did you raise the money? How much money did you need to raise as you were building the company?
2: So uh, we started uh, very early on while we were still working full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we basically just hang out at Jono's house and uh, work on plans and wireframes and stuff like this. And we we had been doing this for a while because we always were thinking of new ideas mm. that we wanted to to do. But um, it finally the penny dropped when one of our friends who um, who works at Google um, in in their business development team over in in Mountain View said, you know, this is one of the less stupid ideas that you guys have had. And I've asked a couple of guys at work, and they actually would use a service like that. Um, so that's when we sort of go, we sort of said, you know, we're definitely going to go at this now. Um, so we um, we got together a bit of our own money, um, and we hired some developers. Uh, we were still working full time, mm-hmm. so um, during our lunch break, we'd go and hang out with the developers and, and things like that. So, a group called Centia and a, a team um, with a, a guy leading, being led by a guy named Michael Chindrick, um, and so we we put out together our money. We spent it all on development. Uh, we built a platform. And then we hustled to get our first users on um, because we knew that uh, lots of people had built platforms, mm. um, but not many had been able to reach traction. So we sort of thought, how can we get as much free advertising and right. free reach as we could? Um, partnered up with a bunch of guys um, who were working in universities, worked with interns to get in there. Um, and uh, we got to a couple of thousand users. Um, and we also put
0: how long t- did it take to get to a couple of thousand users?
2: Um, probably about two weeks. Um, and uh, we did that because we said, "Hey, can you include us in your mail out mm. to all your students and we 'll give you we, we put up a prize to do that uh, we then
0: so what made you decide that you wanted to focus on students first as the air taskers we
2: We sort of thought you know the workers who would enjoy this kind of um, – this type of task-related labor um, are those that have a flexible lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, it's those guys who can work sometimes during the day and just pick up jobs, but they probably don't necessarily need to have a full-time income because at the very um, at the very beginning of Airtask, you know, we knew the job volume wouldn't um, be able to create a full-time income right. like it does now. Right. Um, So that's what gravitated us towards students. But we quickly realized that it was a much bigger market than that. Um, So now, um, you know, we sort of see these three groups, which is the the students, Mm -hmm. um, the the professionals Mm -hmm. who are often working full time or they might be in between jobs, Mm -hmm. but they're the ones really providing the skills. So um, like an accountant
0: or someone like that. Accountants,
2: uh, bookkeepers, uh, graphic designers, marketers, people like that. So
0: in that sense, this is where you start to intersect with something like an ODesk or a freelance that there's a some overlap there in that kind of skilled professional. I don't know that I would go to a freelancer for a bookkeeper. I would think of them to go for say a graphic designer, but there's some overlap there.
2: Well, I think that's a great example of how um, location and proximity how important it is and mm. um, it's really you don't want a bookkeeper in Pakistan. exactly and and not just because they might they may be able to skill up and learn the laws and stuff but there's different cultural aspects um, and then there's the proximity of being able to pick up the phone and you know have that get the books
0: Right. You know, exactly. I have my bookkeeper over in Bronte and I can just pop over there whenever I need to because it's just a bus ride away. Yeah,
2: definitely. And I, I really love the virtual outsourcing monologue because I think that it applies to a lot of segments. But I think that a lot of people overestimate the impact that it could have on um, all of the types of jobs, because even Odesk and, and, um, and Elance and things report that. Uh, their jobs, they're seeing that the the people being assigned to to tasks through their websites are actually getting closer and closer together over time. Um, So in other words, proximity actually does matter. U.S. people want to hire U.S. people. Mm -hmm. Aussies want to hire Aussies. Well, uh,
0: one of my friends did a startup a few years ago and outsourced everything via Freelancer basically to the Ukraine and to Pakistan. And he was in California, which is basically 12 time zones away. And there was a three-month period where he essentially didn't sleep. because they were on when he was trying to sleep and then they were sleeping when he was on. And so it really is, there's a lot of reasons why proximity is a handmaiden to creativity on a project. I agree with you.
2: Absolutely. And I think you you usually don't get anything for free. So um, I think that's a good example. Um, You might get the labor for cheaper because it's overseas, but you'll probably end up sort of having to put in a bit more effort um, to, to manage those So those how, many, how
0: many now, now two years later, how many registered air taskers are there?
2: Uh, so we have 160,000 workers on the platform. Is that
0: just in Australia or is that all around the world?
2: Uh, just in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've really focused our market. Um, you basically can't even register to the platform mm-hmm. um, unless you have an Australian um, address. Right. Um, so we've been really focused on, on capturing this market and it is a big market. I mean, again, the big platforms see that Australia is pretty much the second biggest market after the US. Um, the reason for that well, is that you costs almost so have one
0: percent of the population registered as airtaskers. Oh well, half a percent, I suppose. Yeah, you know, twenty-three million people, right? So yeah, I mean, well, okay, yeah, yeah it's two-thirds of a Long percent. way to go. Right? <laughs> two-thirds. That's 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 very respectable, though, if you're talking about a labor pool that is conceivably sort of you know a third of a percent of the population.
2: Definitely, and our our um our ambition from here is not just to get more people using the platform, but to skill up the people. Um, that are on the platform so that they're ready to do um, jobs um, that have specific skill requirements, and not just skills in the the current sense of the word, things like accounting or mm. or, or plumbing or electrician, but um, things like IKEA furniture assembly. Yeah. It's it's a skill, or being able to put together a certain type of trampoline. Yeah. Um, that is a very specific kind of skill, which these days is not considered a skill, but we believe in the future should
0: be but if it were easy enough to find and locate that skill and get it to hand then you would actually know wait that's a skill when i had my billy bookcases assembled i actually called someone because they did it in 15 minutes and saved me pulling my hair out for two hours that's right it was exactly what i wanted all right let's talk about your business now you've got this hundred sixty-seven thousand registered air taskers how much revenue is that bringing in now
2: um, so we we don 't speak in um of revenue terms um, publicly, but I can tell you we um, we have about a million dollars um, posted through the website every month now okay um, and we take a fifteen percent cut of that so you can do some maths around that um, it 's a it 's a pretty healthy business model it 's not sort of like a Twitter where you need to be investing 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 for okay. sort of ten years or seven years to to get a return um, But uh, we're still in growth mode, and we just want to get really big. Are you raising capital? Um, We likely will be. Uh, We're in a pretty good financial position right now, so Mm. we don't have to. Um, But of course... Well, that's
0: the best position to raise money in anyway.
2: Exactly, yeah. Um, But our board and our investors are definitely like, let's go big. Um, So they're sort of not interested in, you know, let's just make a little company and be like an Australian recruitment agency or something. They're like, we want to see something huge. Ian Gardner was sitting in that seat
0: half an hour ago saying that you know, we're looking for the companies that go to a hundred million, and this is probably what your investors and what your board wants to see for you. How do you get to a hundred million?
2: So I think um, it's very interesting. Um, first of all, I think Australia, just Australia, mm. has an opportunity to be a, a company that big. Really? Um, definitely. I mean, if you look at um, my view on it, is that there was sort of like a a generation one of Australian classified. So there was Seek, Real Estate dot com, and Car Sales. You know, they were the three big pillars: jobs. Houses, cars. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing now is because the internet's become more fluid, um, all of the um, incremental versions of those are now coming out. So with cars, why buy a car on car sales when I can use GoCatch or Uber? So that's the kind of the rent model versus the buy model. With houses, Airbnb. Why buy a house uh, when I can uh, rent? And and we're not saying yeah. that, that it doesn't that have the same dead, fluidity, but, but it's close. Yeah, yeah, and same with jobs. So rather than full time jobs, are uh, temporary jobs. So uh, we think that the scope for these kind of businesses is at that kind of scale. Um, so very interesting Australian businesses, but even more excitingly, uh, international businesses. So you're too. really
0: taking a look at revenues as being a percentage of the entire overall labour market in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Are, will you be going international?
2: Uh, yes, so we we've definitely got plans um, to go international. Uh, we have a team um, sitting over in the US right now doing um, doing our research mm-hmm. um, and setting up uh, some of our a lot more competition systems. over there, though, right? There is, and and the US um, and China, which we also have um, links with, are are really interesting markets, but they are heavily competitive, and you better be ready for a fight, mm-hmm. I suppose, when when you head over to that. Um, pretty interesting to see companies like Rocket Internet say. We do everything except the U.S. and China because everyone else seems to be underserved, right? Um, whereas China and the U.S. seem to be overserved. So, uh, we're still defining our strategy a little bit. So,
0: wow, Tim, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you for being the first startup entrepreneur on this week in Startups Australia.
2: I'm honoured. Thanks, Mark.
0: Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and 11 years ago this week, I got off a plane, moved myself from California, the land of the startups, to Australia, and I found a nation that didn't have any e-commerce that you couldn't even use Amazon, and after I got over my shock, I wondered why. Why were things different down under? And over the last decade, it's been my pleasure to see many startups spring up to answer all of the needs of Australia. Australia has more smartphone penetration than most nations in the world, great broadband penetration. It has a lot going for it. And we're now starting to see the startups take advantage of that. And it's going to be my goal every fortnight to bring the best of those startups to you so you can listen to how these companies, these founders, and these businesses are changing, not just Australia, but the rest of the world. Before we finish, I'd like to offer some thanks from Murray Herps and Fishburners for sponsoring this program, to Felix Varmouth and AnalogCabin.net for their audio production, to Ian Gardner and Tim Fung for helping to launch This Week in Startups Australia. I'll be speaking to you again in a fortnight, and one of our guests will tell us how they're reinventing the automobile. For This Week in Startups Australia, this is Mark Pesci. Thanks for listening.